Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Tiny Homes. The name is cute, and you might think that the idea of them sounds quaint or quirky, but the reality is that smaller living spaces can be a significant part of the solution to things like affordable housing, homelessness, climate issues, energy consumption, and creating more socioeconomically diverse communities, which is a fancy way of saying real, actual communities. Now, a few weeks ago, we had Bjarna Salen on the podcast opening up this conversation about tiny homes. And today we've got Zach Giffen, who is, among many other things, a former professional skier, the host of the TV show Tiny House Nation. And Zach is also the host of the excellent podcast Tiny House Tales, which, after listening to my conversation with him here today... I am confident that many of you are going to want to check out. And backing up here again for just a second, last month when I was wondering about having a conversation about tiny homes, in part to see for myself whether tiny homes could potentially represent at least a tiny bit of the solution to affordable housing in mountain towns, well, I had no idea exactly how much potential tiny homes held to not just improve issues of affordable housing, but also address some of the major issues facing this country and beyond. In other words, this conversation today with Zach Giffen is far more important than I had imagined, and Zach does a masterful job here of laying out what is at stake and the big potential of tiny homes. This episode is presented by Open Snow. We've all been there scrolling through multiple clunky websites and apps full of ads to find all of the snow and weather forecast data to plan our next powder chase or high alpine adventure. Well, it might finally be time to retire those other weather apps thanks to Open Snow, which is a one-stop shop for all of the essential weather tools. You can view 10-day weather forecasts for any location on Earth, read expert local analysis from their team of local forecasters, track active fires with perimeter, hotspot, and smoke forecast maps, avoid lightning strikes, which I always try to do, with live and forecast radar, compare recent conditions and forecasts at your favorite locations, and much more. And even better, you can try Open Snow today by visiting opensnow.com slash blister and receive a free trial through January 31st, 2024 with no credit card required. So again, go over to opensnow.com slash blister, get yourself signed up and start exploring with one of the apps that I and many of our folks here at Blister use all the time. And now let's get to my conversation with Zach Giffen. Here we go. Zach, how are you today and where are you today? I am doing fantastic today. I am in Bellingham, Washington, 
which is not too far from where I live in Glacier, Washington, which is kind of at the foot of Mount Baker ski area. And we've had an, an amazing summer. It's been just gorgeous. And for the first time all summer, we've actually been kind of infiltrated with some wildfire smoke. And so that's bringing the vibe down just a little bit. But for the most part, we've had an amazing summer and that followed a spectacular winter. We had a really stellar ski season um, and I was able to be home for most of it and really get to enjoy it. So that's not always the case. And uh, I count myself lucky. We got to talk about sliding around on snow a bit because this is one of the subjectively slash selfishly, I think one of the really fun parts of your stories is it's like Zach Githin, he's just like us <laughs> like, in the sense of before you got involved in this whole tiny homes thing, uh, you were somebody that was just trying to do a bunch of skiing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've been uh, like a pretty proud and loud ski bum really since I graduated high school, even before high school, I was I was uh, kind of ex, uh, experimenting with my skill sets at ski bumming um, for most of my life, you know, and then it got real serious in the early 2000s when I moved to Mount Baker, Washington. But yeah, you know, and then I kind of paired it into like, you know, having some sponsors and writing for companies and working with photographers and, you know, like a lot of people call me a professional skier, but in my mind, I was really kind of a subsidized ski bum <laughs> for all these years, you know, because I never, I never looked at it as any kind of career. Uh, and uh, it was just a, a way to kind of keep the fire lit in terms of just pushing as hard as I could on skiing um, and getting to work with great people and, and getting to you know, have some travel opportunities that I didn't otherwise have and have some kind of justification for pushing myself a little bit that, you know, you, uh, you get when you're kind of being filmed and whatnot. So no, it was, uh, uh, skiing's been everything in my life, you know, everything else has been secondary and, uh, tiny homes is just in my mind, it's a tool that I was able to kind of leverage in order to really channel my energy into my passion, which was skiing. And so a lot of people are surprised when they find out that I was, you know, so focused on skiing. And, and to me, it's not a, it's not much of a stretch, right? Give me one story of a favorite trip, favorite day, favorite storm cycle. Give us something here before we dive into, you know, important topics about mountain town economics and housing and reassessing all of these things. Okay. Well, I would say the, the I mean, the story that really changed my life was I was a senior in high school and my older brother and his friends were in Fort Lewis in Durango, Colorado. And um, they were heavy duty skiers and they were, um, you know, jumping cliffs, doing all the tricks, trying to film themselves. And they kind of hatched this plan where they're going to get school credit for going on a big ski trip. And somehow I was able to convince my parents and my school to allow me to take a quarter off and go with them on this massive ski trip that kind of left from Colorado. And we you know, journeyed up through Wyoming first, you know, stayed in Jackson Hole and Tarhee, 
kind of skipped Utah. Is there skiing in Utah? No, no, it would have been amazing, but like we were scared of Utah. We thought like we'd get arrested <laughs> the instant we put our foot on in Utah. But so we, uh, you know, we went up through Wyoming, went into Montana, Idaho, and just kind of hopped up and up through the ski areas um, through Big Mountain. Uh, it's called Whitefish now. It used to be called Big Mountain. And we ended up in Canada in BC at a, a little ski area named Whitewater, which you've never been to Whitewater, like, you know, on behalf of the locals, don't go. But if you actually really want to see an amazing place, go to Whitewater. It's just a killer little ski hill that punches way above its weight. And we were there for this unbelievable storm, um, you know, just a, a, a cycle, really. And we were camped out in the parking lot and just thought we had just basically found heaven and uh we ended up kind of linking up with some locals up there um shout out to chris people call him fuzzy and thomas they were these buddies and they kind of like started showing us around and uh got us up into some pretty heavy stuff um and after about two weeks or so they knew that we were kind of like trying to push on on our ski trip and and thomas is like guys if you like to jump cliffs and you want to go film some stuff, you got to go to Mount Baker. Like those boys don't mess around. Like you want to go get gnarly, like go check out Baker. And my older brother had had a, a buddy who was going to Western. And uh, so we actually had a place to stay. So we, you know, packed up, went down to Mount Baker and it happened to be January of 1999 which if you know about Mount Baker, they actually, you know, broke the world record for snowfall in 98, 99. They got almost 1200 inches of snow that year. And we just like stepped into a fantasy world, you know, is the way it was for me. Like it was totally surreal, the amount of snow. And I mean, I think we were there for two weeks and it, and it snowed almost two feet every single day of those two weeks. It was, it was like something I had never, nobody had ever kind of bothered to like take me aside and said, Hey, guess what? You know, there are places in the world where like it snows like this, you know? And so that just completely changed my life and it ruined me. Um, and at the end of that storm cycle, I was actually up on this kind of big backcountry zone called the Shucks and Arm and uh, just heard this unbelievable rumble. And it turned out to be this, you know, like category four, maybe not quite category five avalanche that took out like probably a quarter mile of slope. Um, and it was about, you know, a 20 foot deep crown. And it was just this surreal avalanche killed two people and we you know it kind of ended our trip um but basically i started at that point kind of going back to mount baker every year and then um you know in 2003 or something i was just kind of like well what am i doing i just need to i just need to uproot myself and move to this spot because i know where the pow's at and i you know you know, I know what's up. I need to just make this big shift. Um, and I, and it kind of, that story totally does, uh, lead into tiny homes for me because like any kind of big life shift, it's scary as hell. You know, I was 
uh, 23 years old. I didn't have any friends that lived in that area. Um, I kind of had a connection with the mountain because I had been going up there and kind of knew some of the the people there. Um, but I didn't have a place to live. And so my solution was I bought an RV, uh, you know, super junker RV. I think I paid 1600 for it. it. The roof was collapsed. The guy had driven it underneath a tree branch. Um, so I need to like totally chop off the roof and repair the roof. Uh, it came with a full load of the dude's shit <laughs> in the gray water, in the black water tank, you know? So that was like one of the first things I had to do. You know, it was not the most educated purpose, but what it was for me was it was like my ticket to be brave enough to kind of go through with this massive life change. And, uh, and it worked, right? It was... I, I drove it out with my little brother and we didn't have a place to live, but it was kind of our safety net and um, we found a place to live and kind of the rest is history. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. But like, let's get into more of that history then. So you have a, a charming RV that you're uh, using kind of as a base, but then keep going in terms of this trajectory into tiny homes did you know people that were living in, and we're going to get later into like what technically counts as a tiny home, but like, what were you seeing or what were you reading that got you continuing to think about, you know, maybe we don't need a massive, massive home base, you know, to live in? Well, I mean, I think, um, you know, that that mentality of minimalism a little bit was already baked into my psyche because I was such a focus skier, ski bum, you know? And I think in the culture, in the skiing culture, it's been long understood that, you know, when you exchange, you know, some of these uh, life luxuries, the trade-off a lot of times is that you get to live in a capacity that allows you to have a lot of time to actually ski the pal, Right. You know, and so it's a, it's a trade-off that I think people in the ski world understand. I think it's it's something that people in in like kayaking culture, in surf culture, in a lot of these different kind of sports cultures are well accustomed to is this idea of being a dirtbag, you know. But there comes a, a little bit of a badge of honor that comes from being that dirtbag because you know, people within that community have a certain respect for somebody who is just dedicated, right? And so for me, I think I was already primed to kind of live in this kind of way where I wasn't so focused on the material possessions to be like a part of my identity to make me cool or something. It was just about being a dedicated, focused ski bum. Um, and so you know, the, the, the RV, you know, I did my best. I was a, I was a home builder. I was a carpenter, right? I've been building homes since high school and beautiful, you know, million dollar homes and doing fancy cherry trim. And so, you know, when I say I fixed up the RV, I like, I did a pretty nice job. I put, you know, I put oak floors in and all new cabinets and, uh, you know, redid the roof. So it was all wood paneling. So the inside of my RV was, it was beautiful. The outside was, a what you would think of as like a zombie RV, you know? 
Wait, do you have photos? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, there's definitely photos. Okay. Okay. I, we're going to need to include some. You know, there's little video clips and whatnot. But, uh, you know, when I when I got to Mount Baker, the first place that I moved into was this little cabin in on a place called Czech Road. And, uh, you know, it's since then been condemned. But, I mean, I, I was sharing a room that was probably the size of a big walk-in closet with my little brother sleeping on bunk beds. There was five people total in the house. It was probably 400 square feet, you know. So it was like the smallest little thing. We, there was three dogs and four cats or something and five people. It was the tiniest tiny house that you can imagine. Um, and so it was, it was just an awareness and it was something that I loved. I think of those years as like some of the most just joyful moments of my life. Um, but the RV was always an eyesore, right? And I got it. It was like nobody wanted it around. It, it was nice on the inside, but nobody really wanted it parked outside. The neighbors didn't want it around. Um, and so after like a couple of years, I actually sold the RV and I bought a van and I tricked out my van with a wood stove and I put a bed in it. It was like, you know, totally what you imagine, you know, van life, only it wasn't a nice sprinter. It was a, a Ford 150 Econo line. Um, but it did the trick, you know, as long as you weren't afraid to put some chains on, you could pretty much go where you needed and you get there and you got a wood stove and you could, you know, it, it did what it needed to do. Um, and so this was all years before, um, I ever heard of a tiny house. You know, I'd already owned the RV, already lived in small homes. I had the experience of then renting a larger home with some friends and having a nice bedroom and then hardly ever being there right? I was traveling all the time trying to pursue being a skier. And it's just like, why am I paying all this money for my home, my, my stuff to live in a room when I'm not even there? And so, you know, I think for all those reasons, by the time that I actually heard of a tiny home, I was pretty primed up to be like, not, not, oh, how am I going to do it? But more, more of the idea of like, oh my God, that's perfect. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> So when did you finally hear about tiny homes? Like take in the timeline, where are we? Okay. Yeah. So that would have been, you know, I, I, first I moved to Mount Baker. I worked in the, in the terrain park. It was amazing. I got to just shred the terrain park and then ski pow and it was too snowy. And then I worked for a year on the ski patrol. Um, and then about that point is when I was starting to get some actual like support from sponsors and started getting real more serious about, all right, let's start working with some photographers and, and trying to get in some movies and whatnot and just, you know, mm -hmm. do whatever I could. Mm -hmm. I was already always kind of like a D list pro skier, but <laughs> stop, you know, I, I was definitely, I wasn't afraid to, uh, put my, put myself out there and, uh, I worked hard, you know, that's what I'll say. That's awesome. But so we have we have subsidized ski bum and D list pro skier. This is I'm, I'm learning all kinds of new terms. This is very good. Keep sorry to interrupt. Just uh, keep going. You know, one of my um, all time best sponsors ever has been Outdoor Research, and their clothing company up here in in the Northwest, and uh, fantastic clo clothing brand. Um, and I had kind of proposed a kind of project with them that was going to be taking me on the road where I was going to go to like different, 
you know, ski areas around the country and kind of search out those like dedicated hardcore locals. Like the guys that weren't necessarily, they were like skiing really at a high level that were getting noticed, but weren't running around with their hand in the air for, you know, seeking attention. They weren't like really trying to be pro skiers, but they were just so incredible that they were very influential and we were going to honor them. And that was, that was the whole idea of it. And the question came to be of like, well, how are you going to get there? Like, what is it going to be? I was like, well, I got this, you know, serious ski bum van, you know, and that's totally my answer. And that was like, it didn't quite sit super well for them that like they'd be putting their brand on my, on my beater van, you know, and that would be it. So then, but I kind of knew that. And then in the proposal, I was like, well, here's the other option is like a really generic um, RV that we could rent. And here's the numbers that it would cost, you know. And then I had a third option in that proposal, which was a tiny house because like a couple a month earlier, my dad's friend, he had like kind of heard about what I was doing and just kind of knew about me. And he was like, dude, have you ever thought of a tiny house? And I'm like, a what? And he showed me some pictures and uh, like instantly light bulbs. I'm like, that is amazing. Cause to what I saw it as was essentially a custom cabin on a trailer. Right. That's what it was when I first thought of a tiny house. And so, you know, I threw that in the proposal and said, all right, you know, this is the other option. And if you buy the materials, I'll build it. Right. And I all credit to outdoor research. They were a cool enough company that they got it, that they understood that like, this is the type of structure that will speak to our client base and like resonate on a level that you can't buy. You know, it's that kind of soul that comes with something like a tiny home that's, you know, customized and hand built. And so that's what happened. They, you know, they, um, they funded this project and in that funding was me building a tiny home. And I literally had like seven weeks until we were supposed to be in Idaho at the like powder or powder party. And so I just worked like 14 hours a day, seven days a week for seven weeks. And I built the thing, um, had some, had some good help with some friends. Uh, and that was my first tiny house. And, and then we kind of went on tour and it turned into a pretty successful project for outdoor research. Uh, got a lot of notice through that. Um, did it for like three years and, and, you know, pretty much right off the bat, you know, the home belonged to outdoor research, but I was kind of the caretaker of it. And, you know, I didn't have any other place I lived. That was, that was home base for me, you know, and I would take it and, uh, li you know, in the summer times I'd park out front buddy's house in the winter times, you know, we'd be at ski areas. I'd, you know, I'd be kind of like bouncing around wherever I could. Um, and it was just such a magic ticket for me, right. To like be able to kind of not pay rent have a place that made me feel comfortable that was like dignified it wasn't just like you know a you know it all of the stigma i think that gets projected at um a lot of kind of more affordable housing types i really felt like i was able to sidestep a lot of it um and i was really proud of it and i and i think that made all the difference and i think that's really um informed a lot of my 
understandings of what a tiny home can be moving forward in life, you know? And so, you know, just fast forward in 2014, I was in Revelstoke and we were actually camped out on Rogers Pass, which is in my mind, like, you know, the Mecca of amazing skiing. And, uh, especially back then, you know, it was like the, the way to go was to have a rig that you could park up there. And, um, I had, it was, this is, you know, I had been kind of made aware that they were like casting a, a hosting role in a tiny house television show. And somebody had sent me an email and I sent them back and I said, Hey, sounds like you're looking for me. Didn't hear from them. Didn't hear from them. And then <laughs> did you actually write that? Sounds like you're looking for me. Yeah. Yeah. I That's did. Great. Cause they, <laughs> if you saw the casting call, it was like, I mean, you know, it, it was like, okay, you must be, you know, between the ages of 25 and 45, you have to have built and lived in your own tiny house. You got to like be able to speak the language of construction and you got to be, you know, comfortable with production. And I was like, all right, well, check, 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 you know, and it just sounded like they were asking for me. So I, I wrote in and, and that's what I said. And, um, yeah, they, basically gave me the job when I was in Revelstoke, called me up and said, all right, you got it. You know, I'd already gone through a couple little, little kind of, uh, barriers of, you know, testing, I guess, or where I, you know, sent them little videos of me talking. And then, uh, yeah, they're like, all right, here's your contract. Get it back to us by tomorrow. And I'm like, I'm in Revelstoke. I don't even know where a, a fax machine is. Like you're that, like, I don't know that they have pens in this country. <laughs> no, I did, but I was like, you know, Rogers Pass is not like right yeah. close to Revelstoke, and it was pound out, and I already I was there on an agenda. We were filming, you know, I wasn't about to just leave the powder so I'd go sign a contract. Yeah, like, uh, it's not it's not what I do. Yeah, and they had no understanding of that at all. It was like completely beyond their scope of possibility that they might be able to give somebody a host role as a TV show host and then have them take like a couple days to sign the contract. But, uh, you know, it was there, there was, but within a week, you know, I was on a plane to New York city. Um, and that was my, my first, uh, time that I embarked on filming tiny house nation. And, uh, you know, it, it turned into a big, big deal. <laughs> yeah, it did. Okay, so that's so that's 2014. That's yeah. that's the launch of Tiny House Nation. I, yeah. you and I were talking earlier. <laughs> I keep getting hung up on when to use the word home and when to use the word house. And I, I'm going to say again the idea I told you earlier. I think you're like the czar of tiny homes, and I think you need to just lay out a mandate like for here to forth going forward it's and then you just pick but we're all gonna say homes or we're all gonna say houses but we're not gonna say both man if if i had to i would probably call it a tiny house you know because i think well because uh, I, there's something to be said for the idea of like a home is a home. A home is like where you feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. A home is, you know, and that, and I think that, you know, a home really should be like where you feel comfortable, where you are. It doesn't, to me, um, it's a little bit more loose, whereas a house is more describing the structure. If that's what, you know, if that makes sense. Like, I don't think of, I think I of think a tent. Right. 
could be a home, yeah. Yeah. right? But I wouldn't call it a house. No, right? tents are not a house. So that's that's where I would sit. So if it was up to me and we were only going to do with one, I would say it's tiny house and they're tiny houses and, you know, we would just kind of make it a little more simple. But you know what? If you I, – I actually like the idea of it being like interchangeable because you that means – Yeah, because – We get both. Yeah. Get different connotations. You know, I think it's just like if you're really freaked out about the interchanging of – house and home to me that just kind of means that you're like too uptight and oh, so man, it's a I feel i feel attacked <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> i'm trying yeah are you feeling square right now because that's what i'm trying to do so i i do like opportunities to freak the squares you know okay and just kind of freak people out that are a little uptight and uh tiny homes actually do that tiny houses <laughs> tiny <laughs> homes slash tiny yeah. houses yeah so Let's keep going. 2014, Tiny House Nation yeah. hits. Tiny House okay. Nation Just, is going. You know, fast forward is, um, you know, we've now done five seasons. We've done 84 episodes. It was on a, a little network called FYI that, you know, and then it kind of graduated up into kind of Lifetime and then uh, A&E. Um, and, and A&E's kind of owned it the whole time. And then, you know, the last season was on on Netflix. Um, and then now it's like, you know, the whole catalog's been sold to a whole bunch of different kind of networks. So you can still find it on like Samsung TV and Roku and it's been on Nat Geo and uh, Bravo. So it's uh, it's done its rounds on the different networks. And I'm just stoked on it because it just means more people get to be exposed to the the concept of tiny homes. And I think that, you know, if I'm, if I'm proud of something, it's how hard I worked, um, to make the homes as amazing as possible with the full awareness that kind of people's, uh, uh, opinions about the entire movement and about what it is are going to be dependent on almost their like first exposure to what a tiny home is. And so that was kind of a lot of responsibility on me um, because we were kind of the, a lot of people's, most people's, I would say, kind of first exposure to tiny homes, tiny houses. Um, and I really believed in the power of what a tiny home can do. And I thought that it was total bullshit that this type of structure wasn't just a legal option for people to have in this free country of ours. Um and and I and I didn't want the uh, the message to get lost on the messenger. So that being said, I definitely don't feel like I earned being a host of the TV show. You know, like I said, I kind of just like responded to a, an email for a casting call. You literally said you. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like you've been looking for me. So I'm not sure that I believe you when you're like, I didn't really earn it. You, yes, you, that's exactly what you thought. Maybe. You're like, dear company, here I am. Now I'm not going to sign any contracts for a minute because I'm going to go ski pow, but you're welcome and it's a yeah. good day for you. <laughs> I'm sure there was a little bit of recce. There was a swagger maybe that they, uh, that they recognized from that. There was a confidence there because I did, you know, I, I felt like I really had lived it pretty hard and I was such a advocate for tiny homes because of like what I said, I, I just recognized the freedom that it had offered me 
and how it was just so ideal for my life and my lifestyle at that point in my life that it was like, yeah, this is perfect. Um, and more people should have the opportunity to choose this if they, if they deem it appropriate for them. Yeah. Hey, two things I want to talk about. You know, I had a conversation recently with Bjarna um, about this same topic. And it, I think it's really cool to get Bjarna's take on some of these things and, and now get to have you uh, kind of weigh in yourself. But one of the things that I thought was fascinating is, you know, Bjarna isn't from this country. And if you listen to the episode, you'll hear him pretty politely just being like, what are you Americans doing in your gargantuan homes? You know, and I, I, I like that he sort of had these notes multiple times in our conversation, you know, and I think that's appropriate. And I think we, it's a, one of the things I love about what, just one of the things, but one of the things that I think is really fascinating about the tiny homes movement in general is just its ability to get us to reevaluate values and what's worth valuing and what isn't. And a, and a second thing, you know, you're talking about, you know, Mount Baker. And when we think of today, you go into increasingly any ski town. What do we see the closer you get to the ski areas is the homes generally are getting bigger and bigger and bigger and kind of you know, in some ways, nicer and bigger, and it's just wild. And, you know, we have been talking a lot at Blister about just kind of mountain town economics and affordable housing and how do we make these communities sustainable. And um, I confess to, to Bjarna that I used to think of tiny houses as kind of being a bit of a, like, okay, great, you want to, like, like fly your freak flag type of thing. And increasingly it's like, wait, we just need to reevaluate and reconsider how much home do you need and why do we get, and it can be quite seductive. You, you go into some of these beautiful places and often with the ski areas and you just see these magnificent sprawling homes. And it's like, why, and how did that become to be the norm almost in some of these places? And I think this is a great opportunity for people to really fundamentally reevaluate, like, again, what do we need and why do we need this much? And, and maybe I don't. And I'll shut up here in a second. But then to your point about and why are there rules and restrictions that in many places seem to hinder the ability to put up a smaller structure on a piece of land or park something that has wheels beneath it? What are we doing here? Okay, your turn. This, I mean, those are all extremely good points. You know, I, I say all the time that, you know, the word tiny, just the word is something that doesn't have any meaning without perspective right? Like what is tiny? Well, it, it has to, you have to be comparing it with something. And so, you know, 
it's not a surprise that tiny homes and the and the word and the movement was really originated in the United States because of exactly what you're you're saying is that our homes in comparison with the rest of the world have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where a tiny home a lot of these tiny homes are you know 400 square feet in a lot of parts of this world you know that wouldn't be considered as qualifying for the word tiny but here in the United States because it's in comparison with the the average size home being 2500 square foot you know and a lot of like what you mentioned in ski towns that would be considered a small home right that and so so it's two parts it's that the home size has gotten bigger and bigger but it's also because the housing crisis the affordability crisis has kind of come to a head in our country before you know at this point i would say that the housing crisis has spread to many parts of the globe you know but certainly the originator in my mind of the modern housing crisis was you know cities in california it was los angeles it was you know the bay area where you started kind of hearing about people feeling like they're getting completely priced out of their communities. And what I will say is that the other canaries in the coal mine when it comes to housing affordability has been our resort towns, right? These places that we love to be because they offer access to the sport that we really love to, to do, like the ski towns, they have been struggling with housing affordability and like even this idea that the workforce or the, like the locals have been getting squeezed out of the community. Like this is nothing new for, um, for skiers in ski towns. And so that's kind of why I say that the, you know, the attitude of a ski bum where I'm going to just live in whatever kind of accommodations I can find. I'm going to have all sorts of roommates. That is something that's been ingrained in the ski culture partly because these resort towns are so exclusive, right? And so it's it's that combination between the just, you know, the culture that we have in the United States of bigger, 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 and then the affordability crunch that a lot of us have been ex experiencing, you know, people in the blue collar communities have been experienced this. It's like getting harder, harder and harder to survive. And so that's really what has kind of, caused the modern tiny house movement. Um, and I, I'm just going to say is a lot of people, they, you know, they confuse it. When I say I'm an advocate for tiny homes, they feel like they're almost getting attacked if they don't live in a tiny home. And it's so far from that, right? It's, it's not me trying to project on everybody that you need to live in a smaller and smaller home and that your life is going to be that much better. You know, what it really is, is just fighting for the simple freedom to be able to have that self-determination if you choose to. And right now, because of the building codes and because of zoning codes in most places, that's not an option, right? You can build, like you said, uh, in these resort towns, like I think you're in, in Crested Butte, right? Well, there's something that I've heard referred to as the 8, 8, and 2, which is 8,000 square feet, eight bedrooms, two weeks a year, right? Which is people that have so much money that they can afford to build an 8,000 square foot home with all of these get bedrooms 
and it's just their two-week-a-year vacation home, right? And so that is totally legal. But if I want to buy a property in the same space and I want to build a tiny house, it's not actually going to comply with the zoning requirements that have minimum square footage requirements. And that seems totally um, out of balance in terms of the the, uh, freedoms, um, especially when we're dealing with such critical issues out in our in our country which is you know housing affordability being one homelessness uh workforce not having like actual places that are affordable that they can pay with their wages so it's actually pinching our business community as well and then that's not even to mention the environment and the carbon contribution of housing and how if honestly if there are people that want to live in a small home. That's one of the most environmentally friendly things that you can do as a lifestyle choice. And we should definitely as um, society be not putting roadblocks in front of people that want to make that choice. We should be encouraging anyone who wants to live more sustainably to do so because it's really contributing to the the goals of essentially all of humanity at this point. Preach. <laughs> <laughs> But that being said, it's not about attacking people who don't live in tiny homes. And, yeah. uh, and I guess I'm going to go just on one more tangent on that and, and say, here's what it really is, is when you look out at our housing stock, okay, the homes that we have in our country, what I see is this massive misalignment between what we have and what we've constructed and the needs of our population, right? And, and to um, kind of paint what that means um, or illuminate what that's supposed what that means to me is that in the last five decades we've had these continual trends of smaller families of uh, especially people getting married later in life um, also divorce rates for baby boomer generation and olders are are far higher than they they were in previous generations and so what it means is that the percentage of our country, of our population that are actually living in nuclear families has been going down and down and down over the decades. And at the same time, we've essentially stopped constructing a lot of the smaller housing types that would be essentially appropriate for the needs of single people. And so when I, when I moved into the tiny home, you know, I was not married, you know, it was me, it was Molly Baker. Um, we had this very kind of traveling lifestyle, right? And it was a it was a housing type that was appropriate for our needs at that moment. And, you know, as a single adult, a tiny home is particularly, I mean, it's pretty obvious that it's it 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 does the trick. You know, it's a very fine, appropriate size space for a single person. And that's what we just don't have out in our housing supply is the smaller housing types. And so, you know, you hear economists talking about, okay, well, the problem with housing affordability is that we haven't been building enough homes to keep up with the demand. But nobody, I mean, hardly anybody ever talks about when when you're saying, okay, we need 5 million more homes in our country. They don't actually talk about what types of homes we actually need. And And when I look at the numbers, and I'm recognizing that uh, our largest demographic in our country are single adults living alone. 
right? That's the number one demographic. And when you combine the amount of people that are in a house by themselves and the people that are couples without children living in homes without roommates, it's nearly three quarters of our population. And so essentially it's the polar opposite when you look at our housing supply. Almost three-fourths of our homes are built and designed for the needs of a nuclear family. And so what we have is essentially a, a, a great misalignment. And what we can do, the role that tiny homes really can play, is that they can provide dignified, affordable housing options for single adults and married couples without children. And it can provide ways that people who are currently occupying large homes who don't necessarily need the space or want the space, just even a fraction of those, if you give those people more options, more desirable ways to downsize, every time somebody does, what does it do? It essentially frees up a larger home and puts it back into the housing supply and helps solve that kind of supply and demand equation. And so we don't even have to, you know, make everybody live in tiny homes, what we need to do is just supply um, more options for people who choose and want to downsize. Because per currently, I believe that there's a lot of people that are essentially, especially older adults, kind of trapped in larger homes that they know that they don't need, and they don't even really want the space. And they can't, yeah, and they can't actually, you know, maintain the homes themselves. And they're just kind of treading water financially they're unable to retire. And part of it is because we don't have enough desirable ways to downsize. I was giving you a hard time about <laughs> claiming that when you said like, looks like you found me, but I, I think you were, that was actually the right answer. That was a hell of a lesson on kind of our, our state of the union. That was excellent. Do you happen to know then when we're talking about you know, we talked about the this call for we need more homes, we need more houses. What the average is these days, and I I love the way you've laid out. Like the nuclear family is less and less of a thing, but there doesn't seem to be a corresponding reduction in the size of homes being built. But what can you tell us about the quote unquote average? size of new construction homes and or is that just all over the map depending on geography i mean it really kind of ties together with interest rates when we have dropping interest rates people can leverage more wealth and they tend to buy bigger homes and and part of that mentality is essentially that we've convinced ourselves that our homes are our best investment that we can make and so, you know, basically you go to buy a home and you're, you're getting told by kind of real estate market and realtors that, you know, what you need to do is just leverage any, every penny you can get your hands on, buy the biggest home you can, because that's going to get you the better return on your investment, right? And so that's been a big problem. And that's been a big driving force in my mind of why people are just buying bigger and bigger homes and they don't really think about whether or not they need the space. It's because it's just seen as this like infallible investment. Um, you know, when interest rates go up and then the appreciation of our homes kind of slows down, 
whether or not that's actually a smart move starts to become something more people question. And so um, in that kind of environment, people tend to more look at like, okay, well, what kind of home do I actually need? You know, how many rooms do I actually need? Because they're not necessarily convinced that it's just going to be this ever appreciating asset. Um, and I think that that's what you see. So if you track like how, the the size of homes, I mean, homes were continually expanding, continually expanding. Um, and after 2008, you know, when, when, you know, interest rates dropped, there was a lot of people that started looking at tiny homes, started looking at affordable homes, but that didn't last that long. And the, the average size home started increasing again and again. And then right about 2019, we actually, well, starting 2016, we started incrementally raising the interest rates. And what you saw was the average home size started to plateau and actually was receding a little bit before the pandemic. Pandemic hit, interest rates went to nothing. And all of a sudden, what you see is the exact opposite. And now home sizes are expanding again. Um, and so it's very, it's very much tracked to the, the finances. Okay. Explain to us why it is the case in a lot of places, there are kind of literal rules and laws against putting a small living structure in a given area or next to a huge, beautiful new thing home next to a ski area talk a bit about that okay so the the obstacles that tiny homes face are two parts it's one part building codes one part zoning codes and those are two different kind of animals so the building code issue um when you're talking about a tiny home on a foundation so that's one that's just built like any other home right that was a real problem up until about 2018. And I was actually part of kind of a delegation that went and kind of lobbied the ICC, which is the uh, non-governmental body that actually writes the guidelines for the building codes, to um, give us some allowances so that we were exempt from having to meet certain requirements in the building codes if your structure was under 400 square feet. And that actually passed. And so that was called Appendix Q, and it really made it possible where it wasn't before to build a fully functioning home under 400 square feet and be in compliance with the building hmm. codes. You know. So wait, wait, why was there ever a minimum size in the first place? Well, um, that's a really good question. You know, the way that the codes are written it's it's a lot like other rules in our country where you know it's supposed to be a democratic process but the truth of the matter is the people that have the power to pay for experts to go and lobby on their behalf a lot of times have kind of an outsized influence and so building codes are no different and i would say that that's part of it right you have the home builders association they obviously have an incentive to have homes be bigger and more expensive it's better business um, and then there's also, you know, essentially what the building codes, uh, and this is in their bylaws, they're only really allowed to focus on three things. And that's, that's health, safety, and efficiency. 
And so they're not really considering affordability of their homes. They're not really considering any kind of things like environmental impact of the building materials or whatnot. It's really just, okay, how do we make homes as healthy and safe as possible? And I think that there was historically um, times when, you know, you had basically shanty towns where people were really kind of victimized by property owners and forced into living into the like essentially squalor. And it would be like large home, large families living in like a hundred square feet. And so part, part of our building codes were kind of did come from trying to genuinely. Yeah. Genuinely like, um, you know, conscious spaces of trying to protect consumers. But in my opinion, they've, they went too far. Right. And so they started requiring things like, you know, uh, a room had to be 150 square feet. Right. Well, in Appendix Q, we got them to reduce that to 70 square feet, which is a seven by 10 foot space. Right. And so, you know, it's kind of just kind of pulling back on some of those excesses in ways that allow for tiny homes and smaller home construction to be built. Other things were like, you know, a lot of homes take advantage of having a sleeping loft because it, uh, you know, it's a good way to save space on your design. Well, in before 2018, you had to have an eight foot head clearance above a staircase. So if you wanted to have a sleeping loft, not be considered just storage and actually you know, count as like a sleeping loft and be like legal. Um, you had to have your ceilings had to be, have eight foot head clearances. And so, you know, that was something that just made it really co- impossible to build a tiny home the way that people wanted to build them. And so, you know, the appendix Q didn't do a crazy amount of things. Um, some places don't even haven't even adopted it yet. So it's not law in every parts of our country. But for the most part, especially in the West, in 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 states that have ski communities, Appendix Q is in the building codes. And so there's nothing stopping you from building on a foundation. When you start talking about tiny homes on wheels, it's a totally different animal, right? Because it's essentially on a trailer, it's treated as an RV, as a recreational vehicle, regardless of whether or not of, of how you build it. Right. So you could take a structure and build it the identical way that you would on a foundation. And simply because it's on wheels, it doesn't actually qualify as a home that is permitted for full-time occupancy, right? Uh, A recreational vehicle, there's two ways that you can build to it. You can build to the uh, NFPA 119.2 code which is an RV code. And then there's another one that's the park model code, which is an RVIA 11 or it's no, it's an ANSI 119.5 code. And that's what for a mod, for a structure that's called a park model. And it's essentially the same as, as the original RV code, but just has a, a little bit extra requirements. Um, but regardless, as long as you're considered an RV, you're only allowed for seasonal occupancy. So that, you know, is anywhere from 120 days to 180 days. In a lot of cities, you're limited to 30 days, but um, it's not actually qualifying as a home. And so that's what, you know, my work with the Tiny Home Industry Association is essentially fighting for the development of standards that are separate from RVs that, you know, are treated more as residential code, but 
or allow you to build on a trailer. And, you know, we've been very successful in a lot of different places around the country, kind of getting tiny homes the way that they're built. So it's like essentially if you build to the RV code, but you add some things that you find in the residential code, like insulation values, like, you know, fire egress, you know, things that make sense for health and safety, then a lot of these places have just written it into their zoning that we consider that a tiny home on wheels, right? Uh, now what's happening is we're actually working with the ICC to develop standards that will be going into their guidelines, which essentially become law in 49 states and, and 20 different countries. And so that's a huge development because it's far easier for a municipality that wants to incorporate tiny homes if it's already built into, if the guidelines are already into the code that they use, it's a lot less of a stretch for them to actually go through with it. And so, you know, it might sound like I'm pretty far in the weeds. No, uh, no, That no. is legitimately the most simple way that I can explain what is stopping tiny homes on wheels. Um, and all I'm saying is that, you know, the, the process is in the works to overcome those challenges. And once that happens, then it's really a matter of whether or not the states and cities and counties will allow tiny homes in their zoning, right? Because like I said in the beginning, it's two parts. First, it's building codes. Then you got to fight the fight on the zoning side. And uh, the way that it works is that basically zoning is left up individually to the cities and to the counties. So you got to go. There's no way to just like, you know, nationally do. I mean, yeah, there's, there's HUD standards, which are developed at the federal level. So no, actually, it is possible for, um, you know, the the federal government could write their own standard for tiny homes on wheels and could put it into the HUD code and make it possible to comply in that way. However, zoning, I don't know how much you know about HUD code, but, you know, HUD um, is what manufactured homes are built to. So manufactured homes uh, are separate from modular homes, which are built to the IRC, uh, and they are governed by the federal HUD codes. And so there is something that the federal government could do. Um, however, uh, HUD housing is still subject to zoning. And so a lot of places limit it, limit where you can put HUD housing and how it can be used. Huh. This is fascinating. <laughs> um, it really is. <laughs> I mean, you're a dork and totally in the weeds, but this is actually super fascinating. Again, because anybody who lives in a mountain town or spends time in one, it's it just feels like solutions are kind of like fireworks shooting out left and right that, you know, the more you wrap your head around this stuff. On that note, then, as just a person living wherever you live who's listening to this, what is the most impactful thing that you would suggest that individuals could do who care about these things, whether they are actively trying to stay or move into a given community, but would like to just see some of these changes come about. Is there stuff that can help at the individual level or what would help the most? You know, I, I think definitely uh, raising your voice in your city council meetings when they're talking about zoning 
um, when they're talking about housing policy is really important because, like I said before, it's supposed to be a democratic process. But often what happens is that people that like, you know, have the money to have the time to actually show up to the meetings, they organize and they, they collect, you know, collect other people that are like minded and they end up having kind of an um, outweighed voice. And that would be typically it's been the the homeowners associations. It's been the people that are um, kind of typically described under the umbrella term NIMBYs, right? The not in my backyards. And they're the ones that have been dictating how the laws are because they're the ones that are being the loudest. And so, you know, what it really takes is people that are that are feeling, you know, impacted by housing um home prices and want more options and want more diverse communities to actually do some organizing themselves and show up and, and be heard. Uh, and so that's, that's the big one. And, you know, I guess the, the other piece to it that I would say is the most significant is that when I talk about tiny homes and especially tiny homes on wheels, a lot of times people say, sure, like tiny homes. Yeah, they're great for single people. Yeah, we got all these kind of this older population that needs ways to age in place. We have all this like kind of demand, but why wheels? You know, like why why do we have to deal with the wheels? And a lot of people just kind of lose interest when you start talking about the wheels. And so I really have to kind of dive into the significance of mobility, if that makes sense. Because to me, this is this is a big piece of it. And having tiny homes on wheels, what it really is, is it just changes it um, and makes it a much more flexible housing type. And it's not necessarily because people want to move all the time and treat it like an RV and just like travel on the road like van life, you know, but it's more about the idea that number one, you can move your home with you and you can kind of take advantage of opportunity as it arises and you're, and you're less kind of locked in one place. And when you talk to economists, that's actually a really good thing for society to have a workforce that actually can be more mobile. From an economic standpoint, that's just a really he healthy thing. Um, but what it really does is the mobility means that somebody who doesn't own property can still own their own home, Right. And the idea that, okay, Jonathan, you could potentially own a home and I could own a tiny home and you could rent me a place in your backyard, right? So this idea of accessory dwelling units is a very popular way. They consider accessory dwelling units, which is essentially like a granny flat in your backyard, um, as like the most gentle form of increased density. And so they're, they're, it's popular, it's getting passed, it's kind of breaking through the wall of nimbyism. But the problem with accessory dwelling units is that you know, the homeowners that actually could use the added rent, the, the income that would come from renting out their backyard, they're typically people who don't have the financial resources to then go and construct a full-on ADU in their backyard. And the people that do have the resources to build an ADU in their backyard, they don't really have that financial incentive to turn it into a rental. And so what it means is that the ADU, the laws get passed, and it's this big windfall for, for people who are already affluent that want to pad out the value of their homes, 
their properties, want to build a guest suite for grandma or for guests, maybe turn it into an Airbnb, but it doesn't actually really affect the rental um, market because the vast majority don't go onto the rental market. And so allowing them to be on wheels, what it does is it takes those ADU laws and it essentially turns it into an opportunity that people of less affluence can basically uh, be advantaged from, right? Because, you know, Jonathan, you, you might not be able to spring for a full ADU in your backyard, but to just simply run some utilities to a pad in the back, that's not that big of a cost. And then I can bring my tiny home. I can rent out the property from you. You get to start enjoying that kind of monthly income without having this giant overhead cost. And guess what? We both get to enjoy kind of the dignity that comes with home ownership, right? I I don't just get trapped into this perpetual place where I'm just renting for the rest of my life because, you know, it might not be a, a home with property that's going to appreciate the same way. But I am kind of building equity, right? Tiny homes are, you know, probably average about $60,000. A lot of people end up getting payments. But guess what? When you're done paying it off, you got $60,000 value there that is definitely can turn into a good down payment if you do decide to buy a home at some point. So it's really about kind of, yeah, it's, it's a way that you can kind of shake up the current housing dynamic in a way that I think is actually very healthy for people because it's a way where people can kind of team up on creating a rental option so that the the full financial burden doesn't fall onto the shoulders of one single property owner and essentially, yeah, eliminate a lot of lower income people that would like to take advantage of it it becomes an opportunity for them as well. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> now I just want to know when you're running for president and can I be like your campaign <laughs> manager? That's basically where I'm at with you at this point, Zach. One of the things you didn't mention either, and again, people know this if you live in a mountain town or frankly, if you live probably in an increasingly number of spots. One of the things you didn't mention was First of all, I love the notion of home ownership disassociated from property ownership. That's a, I'd never thought of that. How many people do you know in a mountain town that you're like, hey, how's it going? And they're like, yeah, my landlord just told me I had to be out in a month or two months. This happens all the time sure. because often rental rates are getting increased and they're getting priced out. And so, this idea that to own a home on wheels, to find perhaps a local couple or a local family who could use some, you know, monthly rent coming in if they have a yard. Yeah. It helps everybody yeah. out and you diminish the idea that a, you're going to get a knock or a note, mm -hmm. on, you know, a knock on the door or a note slid under the door that like you got 60 days or a couple months to get out. And it's, it's massively deflating, right? When you put so much energy, even if you're renting a space, you get it all set up in a place that you love. You kind of establish yourself in a community. You're contributing. And then so much of the time people experience this kind of upheaval where they get told that, no, we're selling the home or for whatever reason, the rent's going up. You know, you got to move out. And it's this massive disruption to people's lives. Um, and, 
you know, you go through a couple of experiences like that and it's like, it's almost traumatizing. And so a lot of people that buy tiny homes, you know, one of the things that they'll say is like, I don't want to ever be kicked out again. Right. And so if you have your tiny home and it's on wheels, you might like have a dispute with the landlord or something and, you know, or whatever happens, you might have to leave, but at least you just get to bring your house with you. And so it, it limits the kind of disruption that you have, you know, but I think that there's another really important aspect to uh, why I feel that tiny homes are a really powerful um, tool for society. And that is that, you know, you can solve the housing need and the demand by just building bigger and bigger apartment buildings. But what that doesn't do is address the other issue that we have in our society, which is kind of residential segregation. It's this division between the haves and the have-nots. And I think a lot of people understand that this is kind of a problem, but I see it through a little bit of a different lens. Um, There's been a lot of work that's been done on upward mobility and kind of like figuring out what the predictive factors are in areas in our country that have high rates of upward mobility and low rates of upward, upward mobility. And when I talk about upward mobility, it's essentially like the idea that you can better yourself from hard work and dedication and you can kind of move up in, you know, you know, better your financial reality, essentially the American dream. And what you see is that, you know, there's other predictive factors, schooling, you know, Um, all sorts of things that you can do, but nothing has the effect as residential segregation to depress the rates of upward mobility in an area. And so it really is a big challenge for anybody who, you know, wants to believe in this idea of American dream uh, to figure out ways that we can kind of break down the divisions in our society. And you know, I'm not going to go too far into it, but it's it used to be that we had, you know, we had enforced segregation based on res- on racial lines. Well, that's essentially been replaced with a kind of other tools to enforce that segregation, which really just comes down to economics, levers of of economics. And so what a tiny home also does is by empowering people to like in combination with ADU laws, it combines one larger home, which naturally is probably going to be occupied by somebody of higher affluence, with a smaller home in the backyard, which is going to, by and large, be somebody of less affluence. And right there, we have this tool that is also going to be not just supplying needed housing options, but actively working to break down the residential segregation that is obviously so damaging to society. And so that's uh, that's another piece that I don't think people look at that is it's different from apartment buildings where you can build a really nice apartment building. You can sometimes kind of have different sizes of apartments in some way you're kind of breaking up, uh, you know, having a better spectrum. Like there's some, there's some great work that's been done. But by and large, the way that we zone for apartments, buildings, by and large, just by nature of condensing so many people all into one space, you're basically further perpetuating that that residential segregation. I like to bury the lead a lot on my uh, podcasts. So 
I think we could say that, you know, an hour in, I've effectively buried the lead here because we have not actually defined what a tiny home is. And and to be honest, I don't actually know how strict or not strict the parameters are on that. So can you just say a little bit of that for, for folks that have been like, ask him what a tiny house is for all those people? You're welcome. All right. So. In my mind, a tiny home or a tiny house is kind of any home that where all of the space is utilized and nothing is wasted. And that's kind of like a non-answer a little bit, but I think that that really is the best answer that there is because, you know, if you keep, if you have a five person family all living under one roof, you know, their need for space is a totally different thing. And so... If you have a small home and you got a bunch of people in there, absolutely that qualifies as a tiny home. If you are living by yourself in a 900 square foot home, that might be a small home, but I don't know if it qualifies as a tiny home because I guarantee that if I come in there and and try to kind of organize your stuff and, and make it an efficient design, you're going to have some free space. And so, you know, that's kind of what it comes down to. Because of laws, because of the need for quantifying something um, to make it legal, what we've kind of settled on is a structure that's under 400 square feet. And that can be on a foundation. It could be on uh, a a trailer so it can move. uh, It could be on skids. You know, it really doesn't matter. But under 400 square feet is kind of the agreed upon definition of a tiny house but it also has to be a fully functioning home with all of the amenities that you would expect in a full-size house so if it's you know so if it doesn't have a bathroom in my mind it doesn't really qualify as a tiny house is it a viable shelter and a viable structure that like actually has kind of um relevance and a need absolutely but i think that um in my mind a tiny house it's got a bathroom, it's got a kitchen, it's got a living space, it's got a bedroom or a sleeping space. Um, it's just done in a very much more condensed way. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then, you know, like I think in the future, what we're going to have is we're going to actually have standards that say, okay, this is a tiny house. It's got to be built to comply with these standards, right? Just like the same as with a recreational vehicle. Recreational vehicles, they have standards you have to build to. Um, Otherwise, it's just considered a modified trailer. Um, And so, you know, we are going to see some some building code requirements for tiny homes. Will that actually make tiny homes more expensive? Yeah, it will. Um, It's definitely going to limit what people can do and get away with in terms of construction. And as is me as kind of like a wild West carpenter, I am very opposed to anything that um, kind of curtails my creativity in any way. However, the trade-off is that you got to make some compromises when you're talking about creating a legal habitable structure and the upsides of doing that. So outweigh the negatives from the the little bit of cost that you're going to incur that I'm more than happy to make that trade-off. And the truth of the matter is that nobody's ever going to take away my ability to build a home illegally. 
Right. The only difference is like, Dude. now that's my only option, you know? So I'm just fighting for <laughs> another way to do it where it's actually above board, where it is legal. Uh, and if like, you know, I don't want to comply with that. Well, I can always go rogue because that's what I've been doing for the last, you know, 14 years anyway. So man, as your campaign manager, now this is on tape <laughs> and our, your, our opponents are going to use this against our campaign. Uh, why'd you have to say that part? Okay, give us today what you would regard as a typical price range for tiny houses. And you're talking about a bit of a price increase. What do you think that, what will that shift the range to, do you imagine? So I would say the average price of a tiny house at this point, and and you got to keep in mind, this is like everything from kind of DIY built structures where you're really just paying for the materials to really luxury options, yeah. you know, the average price is probably about $70,000. Okay. You know? So it's not, they're not crazy cheap. Um, you know, the higher, have you seen the, have you seen the price of, of homes, not tiny homes recently <laughs> anywhere? <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay. And, and, and of that, you said about 70. And so the more sort of do it yourself, you're just getting that, materials that, pushes down to about what? Well, I'm I'm going to say 70,000 is like a pretty it's a fully functioning like professional built home okay. that is pretty darn basic, right? Okay. You start getting like really like custom beautiful homes that are like more on the closer to 350 400 square foot zone, right? Uh you're you're looking at a home nowadays that's professionally built, especially anywhere kind of west of the Mississippi, mm-hmm. and you're looking at like you know, over a hundred thousand, hundred and fifty thousand is not uncommon. I've okay. seen homes that are two hundred thousand. Um, but keep in mind, like you can get a travel trailer RV for three hundred grand, no problem, right? right? Good, good, um, yeah, you know, context you, is helpful here. Yeah, yeah, and and just to keep also keep in mind, if you want to build your own home, and you're going to buy a new trailer, you're going to buy the materials all new, you're going to do all the work yourself. You're probably going to spend between thirty-five and forty thousand dollars on the materials, mm-hmm. without any labor at all, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's that's kind of where it's at, I would say. Hmm. Okay, we have another podcast called Crafted, okay, that goes all over the place and and just kind of examines sort of the art and craft of like literally virtually anything. Yeah. I think it would be fun if you're game to have another conversation with you where you actually walk us a bit through for, cause I really want, I want to give as much help on this as possible to people who are kind of wrapping their heads around it, where we go just a bit deeper into like some of the considerations, your, your mm-hmm. best thoughts and ideas, uh, in terms of materials, where you think people cut some corners that they end up regretting, just maybe some things like that, if, yeah. if you're game. I mean, totally. I, okay. I love talking about this stuff. I don't know if you can tell, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's definitely my passion. And we didn't even really talk about like where kind of like my personal uh, wheelhouse is with tiny homes. Because I do work on the legalization stuff. I'm very passionate about it. But you know, what I do and what you see me do on the television show is really I'm experimenting with how we can function in smaller spaces with greater harmony, right? 
And I mean, a lot of people think about that as like, okay, multifunctioning furniture and kind of these ways where like you have transforming spaces. What I really see it as is it's kind of a scientific exploration of like how we can do more with less, right? How we can make smaller spaces work and and not just work, but actually work really well, you know? And, and to me, I think that that is really, it's a, an endeavor that is very much rooted in my own kind of environmental activism, because if we as human beings can develop smarter, small spaces that allow people to live happily in a smaller home, well, what you're doing is essentially, if you magnify that with all you know of the world, right, those little changes really can make a big change in terms of the size of space people demand for their happiness. And it kind of goes into not just, okay, uh, trying to find new energy sources, but how can we be smarter with the energy that we have? How can we do more with the resources that we have? Uh, because I do feel like that is a huge piece of the challenge of the environmental challenge is not just, you know, how are we going to replace our kind of fossil fuels with more green energy, but how are we at the same time going to potentially look inward and see how we can, without kind of jeopardizing our quality of life and making big sacrifices, how can we live lives that are less consumptive? And our homes actually play a huge role in that. And especially the size of the home plays a big role in how we're going to be able to actually lay out our cities, which impacts the transportation that everybody has to have, which is it's so it's compounding. And so being smart with our space and our use of space, it's uh, in my mind, it's a green technology. It might just look like a fun carpentry project, but I'm looking at it in a, in a deeper level of saying, Hey, this is a challenge for all of humanity to figure out how we're going to do more with less. Yeah. Before we let you go, tell us about some of your other current projects or feel free to, you know, go back over a few of the things you've talked about. But dude, you've got your hands in a lot of stuff these days and it's all pretty cool. Yeah. So do you mind kind of walking us through some of the different things? No, no. I mean, um, you know, I think the first thing that I got involved with besides the TV show that kind of took over my life was a nonprofit called Operation Tiny Home. And we, uh, we actually, I have to be careful there. Operation Tiny House. Oh, see? You're the czar and <laughs> Wait, you no. don't even know the names okay. of your stuff. Oh, darn. Anyways, uh, you know, we're a, we're a veterans nonprofit. Hmm. And it essentially, we are kind of an incubator source for kind of local organizations that are trying to build tiny home villages for homeless veterans. And so that's been something I was involved with since 2016. You know, we've kind of traveled all around the country, um, been a part of some way cool projects. And, you know, right now there's actually a bill that's been proposed by a uh, congressman to create some seed funding, some federal resources to actually go and construct um, some tiny home villages for homeless veterans. So it's kind of a, it's a big deal in my world because it's something that we've been trying to just 
you know, showcase what a very common sense solution can yeah. be a dignified, affordable housing solution, right? You're, you're kind of looking at, okay, what is a lower cost housing type that we can construct without sacrificing somebody's dignity that moves mm -hmm. into it, right? And when you're talking about veterans, you're talking about mental health, you know, that sense that somebody's um, sense of pride in the space that they're living in, it really makes such a difference in terms of their self-esteem. Um, somebody having positive self-esteem manifests into so many other positive ways in their life. And it's a really important aspect when you're talking about not just, you know, helping somebody with a place to live, but also addressing mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and in the villages, it's another combination because it's kind of giving you access to uh, community and socialization, which is also something that as human Huge. beings, you know, is super important to everyone. And so, you know, I could talk a whole nother podcast about that, that work, um, you know, and it's, it's kind of really finally at the point where it seems to be catching on and getting recognized um, in, in other areas. Uh, Can you share where exactly some of these communities, you know, where we're talking about geographically? Yeah. I mean, really it's kind of every major population center in our country at this point has got some sort of organization that's probably going down the path of trying to create some sort of tiny home village. There's some really shining examples. I mean, I've probably worked in maybe 14 different cities over the years. Um, there's a, there's a, an organization called the Veterans Community Service or Veterans Community Project in Kansas City that is kind of, in my mind, like the flagship example hmm. of what this can be. It's centralized around like a community building that has all sorts of other services. So it's not just housing. It's not just, um, you know, community, but it's also like job training skills. It's substance abuse treatment. It's uh, mental health specialists. It's, you know, you name it, there's the services. And it's really actually amazing because veterans qualify for a huge amount of different services. It's just a lot of them don't necessarily take it, take, hmm. you know, take advantage of what they're qualified for because it's all over the place. You know, it's hard to access. And so in the village, it's like easier to bring the services into that space. So the, the veteran, the VCP has been expanding now. They're going to South Dakota, uh, St. St. Louis, Texas. There's a, a village that just opened in near my old hometown, um, near Longmont, Colorado, which is uh, awesome. So, but you know, that's just one of many different organizations. Um, and really it's kind of all about just kind of showcasing what it looks like, you know, what this could be and, and that, you know, veterans homelessness doesn't have to be something that we're all just kind of like just this great national sadness. It's something that's actually something we can address. Um, but if we don't take into consideration people's dignity, it's not an actual solution. You know what I mean? It's just another Band-Aid. And so I think we're trying to work past that. And so, you know, and then um, I'm the vice president of the Tiny House Industry Association, <laughs> Tiny Home Industry Association. Oh, God, I can't keep it straight. <laughs> and... uh Basically, what that is, is, you know, we're essentially the lobbying wing of the tiny home movement. Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, 
become a huge passion of mine because here's the thing is like I could build homes. I could build tiny homes for homeless veterans for the rest of my life. And I'm still never going to be able to build enough that it's going to really solve the problem mm -hmm. because there's so much of the problem hinges on the legality of yeah. it. Right. Yeah. So if we can break down these prohibitions and remove these obstacles for people who want to live in tiny homes, you know, that's going to increase society's safety net in a way that really will keep people from falling into homelessness. It's not just about yeah. giving people ways to kind of get back up off the, out of out of living on the streets. It's also a method of essentially reinforcing the safety nets of society in yeah. a way that really will keep people from falling into homelessness, yeah. becoming reliant on the services that we offer to people that are living on the street. And and I think that that doesn't just you know make um, sense from a a moral capacity, but it's actually makes real economic sense hmm. uh, because it's actually very costly to have people yep. living on the streets and in terms of enforcement and, you know, added uh, medical emergencies and um, also just the, the services. So, you know, it makes sense from economics. It makes sense on a moral justification. And um, it's a it's another piece to the puzzle of tiny homes that people don't necessarily look at is we really part of our homelessness problem stems from this deficiency of having a safety net in this country and we make it really hard on people who want to support loved ones and friends and family that are falling on hard times we make it really hard for them to support them hmm. so a tiny home in the backyard it's a lot different than letting somebody sleep on your couch it's mm -hmm. a lot more sustainable and uh, and it's it's a lot less intrusive on people's lives, and um, and especially when we're talking about homeless veterans, almost nobody ends up on the street all at once. It's like people end up going through a process where they burn their bridges, mm -hmm. they burn the support structures that they have, and what ends up happening is that somebody will go will get kicked out of a home that they were they were sleeping on the couch because they became too much for the people. And after a couple of experiences, they'll stop asking because the experience of being an intrusion on someone's life is so undignified, right? Feeling like you're constantly a problem in somebody else's life. It's, it's such an undignified position that people would rather sleep in a tent or sleep in their car yep. than put another friend through that. And so... We need to look at that as society and, and recognize that this is, we are really making it difficult on people to support one another. Hmm. And so, yeah, that's, that's <clears throat> it. I also, you know, I haven't been shooting the show for, um, really since COVID, you know, there's, there's a chance that might come back. Um, but we do have a podcast. So if you like tiny house nation, Definitely go check out the podcast. You'll get to hear all sorts of more riveting things like what we've been talking about. Dude, this is riveting. I'm serious, man. Like this is what I love. A lot of these podcast conversations just come out of my own ignorance about stuff and or like a realization like I used to think, as I said, I used to think it was like tiny homes for some like kind of hipster thing or like you just wanted to, you know, it's kind of like the equivalent of like 
piercing your nose or having a nose ring. It's like, okay, you can do that to stand out. And I think you have done a masterful job of revealing how many layers there are to this and how many levels and why it's so fundamental to solving so many of the problems that we're facing in this country and around the world. And I think that kind of stuff is just super exciting. So I'm not going to let you keep talking about how it's boring and all that. Um, <laughs> but say a bit more about the podcast. Okay, yeah, it's uh, just a good opportunity for me to get together for an hour and talk with my buddy John. And every time we invite another person from the tiny home community that has a story, mm -hmm. um, it's called Tiny House Tales. And we just explore their story, whether they're a builder, or whether they moved into a tiny home, if they're a veteran, whatever. We try to keep it pretty, um, uh, try to get a lot of variety of people in there. Um, because just what you said, it's like tiny homes, they touch on so many different subjects. It's not about just one thing. And so there's a lot of learning that you can have when you explore people's journey um, to tiny homes and, and what it means to them and what it did for their life and how they made it work and what didn't work, you know. So we try to get into all of that. And my buddy John is just hilarious, you know. I'm kind of the... I'm the guy who just like is into the jargon in the weeds and starts to talk about codes. And he's the one that really keeps it fun and light. And John's also probably the better podcaster in that he wouldn't tap the damn table for the first like 30 minutes of, a, you know, recording, like when recording a podcast like you did. So if just in case I'm outing you now. In case our podcast producer can't scrub all of the sounds of you banging your damn fingers all across your table, I was like, I can't believe this guy actually hosts a podcast. Uh, you know, for those of you who've stuck around to the end, um, you'll you'll now know what that noise you maybe heard uh, was. You know, through the through the first half of this conversation. Yeah, yeah, I should be I should be beyond that by now, you, should. you know. You really I'm should. not I don't pretend to be good at this stuff, but like there is a certain kind of level of expectation that I have for myself and it's above that. So, I apologize. Hopefully I did. Like I said, you know, I spend a lot of time making up for things, so hopefully I made up for it. Dude, you, you it's it's actually been great. So good. I really do. I want to connect with you again and We'll have this was, I think, a phenomenal kind of macro conversation. Yeah, I think on crafted to do a more micro focused on like the the mm -hmm. actual art and craft of building these things and and things to know or things that you know uh, non experts. Here's what to think about, you know, mm -hmm. and and I think that would be really really cool and interesting. Um, well, I definitely have a lot of things to say about it. And, uh, you know, as somebody who kind of my life revolves around skiing and I live in the Northwest, you know, we have um, some challenges that aren't really necessarily on the radar of a lot of builders when mm -hmm. it comes to humidity and moisture and, mm. you know, what are you going to do as a skier, like storage options. So if you want to take it from that angle, I really do have some thoughts. So. Oh, that'd be sweet. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Where is the best to check out what you're up to? Where would you like to send them? Just go check out the podcast. That's where I okay. need the most love. So if you wanna, if you wanna do something, check out the podcast. If you wanna, you know, I I try to do 
Instagram. You know, <laughs> you tried to do I try to do Instagram. It's about <laughs> that's about my uh, the limit of my social media kind of yeah. involvement. Um, but you can check out the Tiny Home Industry Association. Mm-hmm. It's got a website, tinyhomeindustryassociation.org. If you want to be uh, a supporter of it, please join us. You know, $25 membership for the year. Hmm. Um, nobody is making money off of this. It's just all about, you know, us kind of getting a bigger community together so we can kind of pool our voices. And, uh, and we have some amazing resources on that website as well as meetups where you get to learn about all sorts of things from people who know it even better than I do. If you want to learn about the veteran stuff, you can check out operationtinyhome.org. Yeah, very cool. Do you make it back to Colorado much? I do. I do. I, um, you know, not really in the wintertime. I don't really go there for skiing a lot, but in the summertime. Oh, I live by I, Baker. <laughs> Why would I ever go anywhere? All right. I see how it no, is. No, it's not that. I see how it is. Uh, but yeah, no, my, my, uh, my parents moved from Colorado. They live in the Northwest as well. Both my brothers live here in Bellingham. And so our whole family kind of did a major transplant, but my aunt still owns, you know, my, my grandmother's house. I grew up in a really amazing town called Gold Hill. That's just West of Boulder. That is just, I mean, such a special place to me. Hmm. Um, and I still have just a huge amount of friends that I just love dearly that live in that area. And so, um, yeah, I go back whenever I possibly can. Hmm. Yeah. Well, be fun to link up if you're ever out around Crested Butte. Oh, I would love to. We're not, we're not that close to Boulder, but you know, but we're, we're a pretty good spot. So, um, it would be fun to connect. I would do it summer, winter, spring, (laughs) fall. I love Crested Butte. Any season. Yeah. Thank you. This was great. I'll let you go for now, but uh, we'll talk a bit, and, and uh, I'm already looking forward to the follow-up. Um, we'll do the, the, the micro conversation, the micro tiny house conversation. All right. I'm, I'm already planning on not tapping. Sick. You yeah, see, just learning good. every day, minute by minute, getting, we're getting better at what we do. So I, I appreciate the, you know, the professionalism there. You know it. Hey, uh, thank you, sir, and uh, look forward to the next one. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate it for the opportunity. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks so much to Zach for a great conversation. And again, you can check out Zach's podcast, Tiny House Tales, to go more in-depth on these topics. But I still am going to have Zach come on our Crafted Podcast to dive into the weeds about the craft of constructing tiny homes. So stay tuned for that and we'll let you all know when that conversation goes live. I want to say thanks also to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode and thanks so much to you for listening. And if you are enjoying these wide-ranging conversations that we have here on the Blister Podcast, we would very much appreciate it if you would take just 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. Let us know that you value the wide-ranging nature of these conversations, and that will seriously allow us to keep this whole thing going and growing. All right, everybody, thanks so much as always, and we will talk to you again real soon.